Hello, my fellow crime divers. Welcome to the first episode of Crime Dive, where we take a deep dive into crime. I'm your host, Lexi, and I want to say thank you so much for listening. Um, This has been something that I've wanted to do for a really long time, and I really do appreciate any support, any listening. It means so much to me. I've been passionate about true crime for years now, and I decided to turn my passion into a podcast for you all. So I just wanted to say again, thank you for listening. Let's get into the case. So today we are going to be discussing the unsolved murder of John Benet Ramsey. Now I know you guys have heard of this case. If you haven't heard of this case, how? You know, this has been very widely publicized because of the gruesome nature in which such a young child, she's only six years old, was murdered. And um, this is more than just a murder case because it's it's at this point it's it's a who done it because it is unsolved and there's just so many odd elements to this case um i know a lot of people have a lot of theories but i'm going to give you a deep dive into this case and let you be the judge of what you think happened let's just get into it so john benet ramsey was born on august 6th 1990 in atlanta georgia to parents john bennett ramsey whose name she took so john benet john bennett's kind of like i guess a french twist Keep in mind, they were pretty rich, so pretty bougie. And her mother's name was Patricia Ramsey, who went by Patsy. And John Bonet also had a brother named Burke, who was three years older than her, and he was actually nine at the time she was killed. And Burke was born on January 27th, 1987. So John was known as a businessman around town. In 1989, he actually started his own company right out of his garage called Advanced Product Group. And eventually this company merged with two other companies and they sold this business to Lockheed Martin for millions of dollars. So this is really where they got their fortune. And what most people don't know is that John was actually married before he met Patsy to um, his first wife, Lucinda Lupash, and they had three kids before divorcing in 1978. Now, what most people don't know is that John actually had one of his, so one of his children from his previous marriage, her name was Elizabeth Ramsey. She died in a car accident in 1982 at the age of 22, and her death was actually reinvestigated after John Benet's death just to make sure there was no connection, but nothing was found, and this was was ruled completely accidental. One thing that I also did not know was that John and Patsy were 13 years apart in age. So they got married in 1980 when John was 36 and Patsy was 23. So, you know, John, he had his business and Patsy was more so kind of the socialite that was, you know, raising the children. And she used to be a pageant queen, actually. She was Miss West Virginia in 1977 and she passed the pageant book down to John Bonet. John Bonet loved doing pageants. She was, you know, pretty good at it. It was a great pastime for her. And she had actually already won several pageant titles by the time she was six years old. In 1991, the Ramseys moved to Boulder, Colorado, and they continued to live their plush life. As I said, they were millionaires. John had sold his business, so they were doing pretty well. They moved into a mansion that was 7,000 square feet, had four floors, five beds, eight baths, sat on a gated lot in a very, very nice neighborhood, and they had a huge spiral staircase. Now, Patsy, being the wealthy socialite that she was, she really liked to show off their wealth. This was something that was important to her. She was very into appearances. She really liked to live that 
rich bitch life and she wanted people to know it. And they also showed off their home. Well, mainly Patsy showed off the Ramsey family home in a Christmas video in 1994. And Christmas was a pretty big deal for the Ramseys. I think it was just kind of an excuse for them to show off their wealth. You know, they had lavish decorations in the house. There was a Christmas tree in every room. They had a huge playroom. The trees in the house were adorned with all these nice whimsical ornaments from all over the world. John Bonet even was gifted a doll of herself, a life-size doll. So, I mean, this is just some rich people shit. So at this time, John Bonet was attending High Peaks Elementary School in Boulder, Colorado. As I said earlier, she had already won several pageant titles and her last pageant was on December 17th, 1996, just eight days before Christmas Day. We are going to get into the events of Christmas Day and Christmas Night 1996. So that Christmas morning, the Ramsey family, they woke up, they celebrated a normal Christmas together. They opened their presents. John Bonet and Burke played and the family just enjoyed their time with one another. So they attended a Christmas party that was hosted by their friends, family friends, Fleet and Priscilla White. And they attended this party around 5 and 6 p.m., somewhere between that time. And, you know, they just enjoyed the party, had fun, hung out with their friends, had a good time. And they returned home around 10 p.m. So there's differing accounts of whether or not John Bonet was awake or asleep when the Ramses got home. And this is because John told different people different stories. So John told some people that John Bonet was awake and she walked into the house on her own when they returned home. And he told some people that he had to carry her into the home because she was asleep. Um, so there's different accounts of that. We're not sure which one is true because he told two different stories. This is a small inconsistency, but it is an inconsistency nonetheless. And eventually around 10.30 or so, John and Patsy turned in for the night and went to bed. So the next morning, December 26th, the Ramseys were getting ready to go on a family trip to Michigan. And Patsy was the first person to wake up. She woke up at around 5.30 in the morning and she found at the bottom of their beautiful back spiral staircase, a two and a half page ransom note. And I'm going to read that for you here. Mr. Ramsey, listen carefully. We are a group of individuals that represent a small foreign faction. We respect your business, but not the country that it serves. At this time, we have your daughter in our possession. She is safe and unharmed. And if you want her to see 1997, you must follow our instructions to the letter. You will withdraw $118,000 from your account. 100,000 will be in $100 bills and the remaining 18,000 in $20 bills. Make sure that you bring an adequate size attache to the bank. When you get home, you will put the money in a brown paper bag. I will call you between 8 and 10 a.m. tomorrow to instruct you on delivery. The delivery will be exhausting, so I advise you to be rested. If we monitor you getting the money early, we might call you earlier to arrange an earlier delivery of the money and hence a earlier delivery and then they crossed out delivery and put pickup of your daughter. Any deviation of my instructions will result in the immediate execution of your daughter. You will also be denied her remains for proper burial. The two gentlemen watching over your daughter do not particularly like you, so I advise you not to provoke them. 
speaking to anyone about your situation, such as police, FBI, etc., will result in your daughter being beheaded. If we catch you talking to a stray dog, she dies. If you alert bank authorities, she dies. If the money is in any way marked or tampered with, she dies. You will be scanned for electronic devices, and if any are found, she dies. You can try to deceive us, but be warned that we are familiar with law enforcement countermeasures and tactics. You stand a 99% chance of killing your daughter if you try to outsmart us. Follow our instructions, and you stand a 100% chance of getting her back. You and your family are under constant scrutiny, as well as the authorities. Don't try to grow a brain, John. You are not the only fat cat around, so don't think that killing will be difficult. Don't underestimate us, John. Use that good Southern common sense of yours. It is up to you now, John. Victory SBTC. Okay, so let's talk about this note. First of all, didn't it seem like I was reading that for kind of a long time? Yeah, that's because the ransom note is long as hell. It was two and a half pages. I know I said that earlier, but it was, that's a long ransom note. You would think that, you know, they would kind of just get to the point and say, okay, we have your daughter. This is how much money we want. Make it happen. Done. But it was long. Like they were writing a novel is what it seemed like. I mean, why did you have that much time? Why were you that invested to where you felt like you had to write such a long ransom note? On top of that, the note was handwritten. Now, there's literally a font that's called like ransom note font, I think, which is, you know, it looks like cut out letters almost from different magazines or books and it's done intentionally to disguise someone's handwriting. So the fact that this note was handwritten, which literally gives the supposed kidnapper an identity and gives investigators more evidence to work with. Now, normally it would at least be tight, but no, this was handwritten. One thing that the note said, or there's plenty of things that the note says that are interesting, but um, this particular line, we are a group of individuals that represent a small foreign faction. Now, say there is something going on and there's a kidnapping and someone does leave a note, right? Wouldn't you want to be seen as a formidable, intimidating force? Why would you call yourself small? Now, this is a small detail. Yes, this is this is minor, but it's very interesting that they decided to call themselves small and foreign. Now, another odd thing about this note is the fact that the amount of money that this small foreign faction SBTC was demanding is so small for a, a kidnapping or a potential murder. They only wanted 118000 That's less than $200,000 for something like this. And everybody knew that the Ramseys were loaded. Everybody knew they were millionaires. So why would you ask for less than $200,000? I feel like their asking price should have been, you know, a bit higher. And not only that, but John Ramsey's bonus that he had received from his company that year was $118,000 to the dollar. They asked for the exact amount of the bonus. Now, mind you, not many people knew the exact amount of his bonus, but what was in the newspaper that was known to the public was the fact that John's company had reached, I think it was like over a million dollars in sales. So you know that his company has gotten over a million dollars in sales, but you don't know about his little dinky bonus. But yet that's the amount that you decided to ask for when kidnapping his child. 
Interesting. This was another line that to me was just weird. Um, and it reads, we respect your business, but not the country it serves. So, okay. They are kidnapping John and Patsy's child. Yes. And it seems that the note is pretty much directed directly at John. And the author of this note makes it clear, we respect your business, but not the country it serves. Okay. So if you are committing such an egregious act of kidnapping someone's child, why would you make it a point to say that you respect their business? as if that is necessary. Now, to me, it seems like this person or whoever wrote this note is almost trying to protect John's professional reputation by separating the business from this the country that it serves or their real reason for committing this alleged kidnapping. They wanted to make it known, we respect your business, but just not America. The author of the note also spells some pretty simple words incorrectly, such as business and possession. Now with possession, they forgot an S, which you know is normal. Possession has four S's and in the note it only had three S's. So this can be pretty common, but then they spelled business wrong too. They added an S in business. There's only three S's in business, now there's four. So, you know, these are pretty simple words. Possession, business, yeah, you know, maybe you forget an S, understandable. But they spelled the words deviation and attache correctly. Now for me personally, I don't even know what the hell an attache is, but this person not only knows the word, but spelled it correctly, but yet they couldn't spell possession or business correctly. Hmm. Moving on from this very odd note, you know, Patsy finds it, she reads it, she's freaking out. So at around 5.45 in the morning, Patsy calls 911 and we're gonna play that clip for you here. There's a few things about this call that I want to go over. And um, one of the things that stuck out to me was the fact that Patsy never mentioned that the note told her not to call 911. Now, if you recall in the note, it says, if you call 911, your daughter is going to be beheaded. That was very specific to not alert law enforcement to not call 911. That was like number one main thing. And Patsy does not mention this once in the entire call at all. She also doesn't mention John Benet's name. She never 
says her name once. She gives characteristics of her. She says her age after the 911 dispatcher asks and she says that she's blonde, but she never gives her name. She keeps it, you know, pretty generic for the most part. And it also seems like she's kind of sticking to certain phrases like there's a note our daughter's gone, there's a ransom note, you know, it's like she's just kind of saying the same things over and over and over again. And I get it. Clearly, she sounds very panicked. You know, she kind of has this breathy, hyperventilating way of speaking during the call. But it it definitely gives the vibe that it, I don't know, to me, it sounded a little bit scripted. But at the same time, it also sounds genuine. So I don't know. But those are the vibes that I'm getting. Let me know what you guys think. And another odd thing was that the end she just hangs up or she thought she hung up she she just stopped talking and the 911 dispatcher's just like patsy 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 hello and she's just not it's like she's done she's off the phone she's she's had it um i'm not gonna play the clip for you because i could not find any that sounded clear at all but people believe that patsy didn't really hang up or she thought she hung up and that she actually was talking to someone in the background and people reported hearing voices and one voice sounds a little deeper than patsy's so people are assuming that that is john ramsey and there was another voice in the background that sounded a little bit more high-pitched and some people believe that this was Burke Ramsey. Now these voices or whoever was speaking has not been confirmed so we really aren't sure who they are but this is just what people believe. So almost immediately after calling 911, Patsy calls Fleet and Priscilla White and these were the friends that hosted the Christmas party that the Ramseys attended the night before. So they call up their friends and they're like hey you know this is what's going on come over which is weird because why do you have people coming to your home that is a potential crime scene but um okay and the police arrived at the ramsey home around 6 a.m and officer rick french was one of the first investigators on the scene so he kind of examines the home he does a quick walk through and he actually pauses by the door that john benet would later be found behind but he didn't actually open the door some people said that he tried to open the door but it was locked or he didn't try to open the door we're not really sure which one it is. Upon initially investigating the Ramsey home, police found that there was no sign of forced entry and there were also no footprints outside of the home in the snow that indicated that an intruder actually came into the home. So as of now, there's no indication that anyone broke into the house. So the the Boulder Police Department being in the area of Boulder there, you know, it's, it's a nice area. It's an upscale area. Not a lot happens around there. So they weren't very experienced when it came to dealing with cases like this. So naturally, they made a lot of mistakes. First of all, they didn't actually secure the crime scene, which was, in my opinion, the entire home. They only sectioned off John Benet's room, not the entire house. And the Ramseys, as, as I said earlier, they called Fleet and Priscilla White to come over. They called a few other friends. I think they called their pastor too. It was just a bunch of people that knew the Ramseys just kind of walking in and out and all around the house, you know, potentially contaminating any evidence that could be found. And the police also didn't really do that thorough of a search when they first entered the home. You know, they kind of walked around, they gave a cursory glance, but they didn't really go in depth. And you know how when you see a crime scene on the news and everything, 
you know, you see the caution tape and there was caution tape, but I guess they were just letting anybody in that the Ramseys wanted in, which is not protocol. Another thing that the Boulder Police Department did that is a big no-no when it comes to an investigation is that they did not question John and Patsy separately. You're supposed to question people separately because it doesn't allow whoever's involved to lean on one another for their answers or fill in the gaps that the other one creates. And you also, when you, cause when you hear it and people are questioning people, like, oh, get people separated as soon as possible so that way they don't have time to get their story straight so you can kind of spot any discrepancies in their stories. But John and Patsy, they were questioned together, so this was not possible. Now, it's said that Burke was asleep and woke up when the police arrived. But as I mentioned earlier with that 911 call where at the end, I didn't play that clip, but the end where it's believed that Patsy didn't hang up when she thought she did and she was talking to people in the background. A lot of people believe that that high pitched voice that's heard is Burke. Now let's for all intents and purposes say that it is Burke. So if Burke was heard in a 911 call at around 5.45 a.m., How when the cops got there some 10, 15 minutes later, was he asleep? What are the chances of him falling back asleep within 10 to 15 minutes? And this is just saying that the theory that that was Burke that was in the background of that 911 call. Again, we're not sure if it was him, but hypothetically speaking, if it was him, what are the odds that he would have fallen back asleep in a mere 15 minutes? Now, it was said that once he was kind of questioned and talked to the police a little bit, and I'm pretty sure he was also questioned with one or two of his parents present, he was sent to a family friend's house. Not sure if that's true, but I did find it and I wanted to mention it because I thought it was interesting that a potential witness to a crime, you know, someone that was in the house when this alleged kidnapping took place was sent away. I mean, he was questioned and they did, I guess, let him go, but I thought that was interesting that the Ramseys kind of just said, okay, go to someone's house, you know, we'll take care of it. But, you know, maybe they also didn't want him to be around when all of that was going on. So there's a lot of reasons why he could have been sent away. So if you remember from the ransom note, the author indicated that a call would be coming in between 8 and 10 a.m. Well, this time came and went this two hour window and no one called. And the Ramseys didn't even seem to notice that this time had passed. It didn't even seem like they were waiting for a call. They didn't even mention the fact that the call was coming. It was almost like they forgot about it, which I don't know how you could forget about that if that was crucial to getting your daughter back. Some people believe that they knew that the call wasn't coming because they were just so unconcerned when it didn't come. They didn't, it was almost like they had to be reminded like, oh yeah, you know, and that's not really something that you would forget. Now, FBI agent Ron Walker, he was investigating the ransom note and he immediately thought that it was fake. He pretty much classified it as what law enforcement call a red herring, which is a clue or an element of a case that is pretty much used to throw the investigation off and it's not real, such as planted evidence or a fake ransom note. And he just got the vibes that someone more specifically the Ramseys, staged the note in order to cover something up. Now, this is what he believed. People at the crime scene at this time, they noted that John and Patsy seemed to be pretty distant from one another. One person was in one room and another person was kind of in another room. Like they seemed to kind of be keeping their distance from one another. People said that they weren't really talking. They weren't comforting each other. Patsy was sitting there distraught, staring off into space and being comforted by her friends while John was kind of just milling around, doing his thing, 
kind of seeming pretty unconcerned with whatever was going on. So early in the afternoon, by this point, investigators have been there majority of the day. Detective Linda Arndt was left at the Ramsey home all by herself without any backup, which is pretty odd considering the fact that this is an open and active investigation. You still don't know what happened. Not only that, but it appears that the investigators are kind of getting the vibe that the parents are involved and yet you left a detective here by herself with the parents and their friends. She's clearly the minority in this situation and they just left her there, which is very much against protocol. But this kind of goes to show how the Boulder PD, they were just way too comfortable because not a lot happened in Boulder, like I said earlier. So I think they were just way too comfortable. So. What most people may not know is during this time when Detective Arndt was at the Ramsey home by herself without any other law enforcement, John actually disappeared for about an hour and a half. And when he came back, people reported that he was agitated and just being kind of short with everybody. And he was pacing, he was nervous, he didn't really know what to do with himself. And when he was asked where he went, he said that he went to his study to calm down, but this can't be confirmed because no one saw him coming or going from the study. This is just what he told people. And Detective Art, she went and told John, you know, just go ahead, search the house again. She could see that he was kind of becoming restless. So she said, just, just go search the house. So John grabs his friend, Fleet White, which is one of the hosts of the Christmas party from before, and they start to search the house. But instead of doing a top bottom search, they go straight to the basement. So after searching for about a minute or so, John opens the wine cellar door. And this is where the um, first officer that was on the scene kind of paused by that door. He wasn't able to get in. And this was actually the door that John went straight to. He just opens it. And according to Fleet White, he says that John just opens this door and says, I found her before he even turned the light on. Like, he didn't turn the light on, he just opens the door and says, I found her. Now this is a wine cellar, it's in the basement. This room has no windows and it's pretty dark depending on how much light was coming in from outside the door. And John Bonet's body was covered in a white blanket. So if this room is dark and her body is covered, how did you know that that was her just by opening the door? In a documentary interview that John was in, he claimed that he was actually relieved or happy to find John Bonet because I guess, you know, he was like, I'm glad it's over. But if your child's been missing for less than 24 hours, why are you already relieved that they're found? I, you know, I feel like if someone is missing for, you know, maybe years or so and you find their body, you no, know it's not the outcome that you wanted, but at least you know what happened because by that point, you've probably already come to terms with the fact that they may no longer be alive. But John Bonet had been missing for not even a full day and you're already relieved that her body has been found and her body has been found in your family home. It was just an odd choice of words. Now, once John and Fleet came across John Bonet's body, John says that he touched her cheek and he took the duct tape off of her mouth. Then he picked her up, he carried her to the living room and placed her on the floor. Now, this is already him disturbing the entire crime scene, contaminating John Bonet's body with any DNA that was on that floor because he's now put her on it. And I just can't imagine all the DNA that was on that floor because of from everybody's shoes, tracking in dirt and mud and anything else from outside the home, in other people's homes that those, you know, it's just 
extreme contamination. He didn't call for the detective to come look at the crime scene. He just completely disturbed it, tampered with any evidence that may have been found on her because by this point, John Bonet's body is in itself a huge part of the crime scene. And some people argued that John did this on purpose in order to rid the body of any evidence that may be on it. But John claimed that, you know, this wasn't true. This was just his initial reaction when he saw John Bonet's body and it just kind of overcame him. And there was no kind of weird motive behind it. But once he brought her body upstairs and laid her on the floor, Detective Arndt immediately said, put her down, leave her body alone. But by that point, it was pretty much too late. Then they both knelt down next to her body and Detective Arndt recalls that there was a quick moment where her and John made eye contact and she immediately felt the need to mentally count the rounds in her gun. And she said that it was at that moment she felt that John may have had something to do with John Bonet's murder. She said there was just like this feeling that came over her. And I'm gonna play a clip of that interview here and you, you guys have to hear this. Jean-Benet was clearly dead, and she's been dead for a while. I ordered him to put Jean-Benet down. I knelt next to her, and I leaned down to her face. And John leaned down opposite me, and um, his face was just inches from mine. And we had uh, a nonverbal exchange that I will never forget. And he asked if she was dead. And I said, yes, she's dead. And I told him to go back to the room and to dial 911. And as we looked at each other, I remember, and I wore a shoulder holster, tucking my gun right next to me and consciously counting, I've got 18 bullets. Why did you do that? Because I didn't know if we'd all be alive when people showed up. I'd said that everything made sense in that instance. And uh, I knew what happened. Do you think your fear was well-founded? You bet I do. There's no doubt in my mind. To this day? Never wavered. You were afraid because you thought the killer was still in the house. I knew it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I think there's something to be said for how much conviction Detective Arndt speaks with. It's like she's making it very clear. There's no doubt in my mind that someone in that house was responsible for John Bonet's murder. To me, that's very, very telling. I think, you know, an, an investigator speaking with such conviction, I don't know. That just, it, to me, that speaks volumes. It really does. But. I'll let you guys, you know, form your own opinion on that. So Detective Arndt then goes on to say in the rest of the interview that John was asking, you know, he said, can I put a blanket over her body? So by this point, she's no longer wrapped in the white blanket that she was in when she was initially found. When he brought her upstairs, it was just her body. And Detective Arndt allowed John to put a blanket or a rug of some sort over her body after he had brought her upstairs without one. And she faced a lot of criticism for even allowing this, but she felt like she had lost control over the situation. She was left by herself. All of her backup was gone. And she said later on in that interview, you know, I felt like I, I didn't have any control over the situation at that point. And, you know, I, I felt 
very odd about the fact that she did let John search the home by himself. But you, you have to keep in mind, we have no idea what she was going through at that time, being there alone with them while feeling like one of them may have been responsible. Because she also said that during the entire day, she was making mental notes of the behavior of the family. And she noted that John acted very, very odd. In that moment, she said everything that I felt was weird was almost confirmed by him bringing John Bonet's body upstairs and just this weird moment that they had. Now, once John Bonet's body was brought upstairs and it was found, Patsy let out a very painful wail. Like she was just distraught. She was very, very upset as to be expected when you see your child's body. You know, that's, I, I couldn't imagine. And Linda also radioed 911 because she told John to call 911. And she also radioed for backup to pretty much update the team that the kidnapping had turned from that to a murder case. And backup did not come for 20 minutes. 20 damn minutes. That is a long time. And, and mind you, at this point, investigators already kind of had the feeling that the Ramseys were involved. So it was bad enough that they left her there by herself and they left her there by herself for three hours. But then you didn't come for an extra 20 minutes when you found out that it was actually a murder and that the body was found in the home. So everybody's fears and everybody's suspicions were all in that moment. And yet it still took you 20 minutes to arrive. Just the neglect of this poor detective. A lot of people give her shit, but I feel bad for her. I couldn't imagine being left there alone with people that I thought committed the crime and then you find out that they might have actually done it, but you're not sure, but you know, she had the vibes. I would be pretty scared. I mean, she, clearly she was scared as well because she felt the need to count the rounds in her gun. And as I said earlier, the pastor of the Ramsey family uh, that the, of the church that they attended, he was in attendance at the house and he led everybody in a prayer, holding hands around John Benet. Linda Arndt, she pretty much said, yes, you know, go ahead, that's fine. Just don't touch her anymore because she felt like this was a good way to keep everyone distracted from the fact that her body had been found in the home. So about an hour or so after her body had been found, John calls a pilot and tries to get him to gas up a plane for him and the rest of the family so they can head to Atlanta. What the hell? What the hell? You just found your daughter's body in the basement of your home and you're trying to get the hell out of there? And, but he claimed that it was for a business meeting. But what business meeting did you have when wasn't your family headed to Michigan that morning? And now all of a sudden you have a business meeting in Atlanta? Thank goodness the police didn't allow this because they allowed a lot of other stuff to happen that I'm gonna get into later. But they pretty much were just like, um, you can't leave. You know, this is now a murder investigation that you were potentially in the home when it occurred. So they said, no, you're not going anywhere because what the hell? And the fact that he even tried is to me mind boggling that a business meeting should be the last thing on your mind when your daughter's body was just found in the basement of your home. And this was a pretty tense time, as you can imagine, given the fact that this case has now turned from a kidnapping to a murder. So with that, I'm going to be detailing John Benet's autopsy, but I do want to give a trigger warning. We are speaking about the death of a child as well as the sexual abuse of a child and sexual abuse in general. If you do not want to hear about the graphic details of John Benet's autopsy, I advise you to skip ahead about 
two to three minutes so that way you are not uncomfortable and you do not hear anything that you may not be comfortable hearing. So when John Bonet's body was found, she was wearing a long sleeved white shirt with an embroidered star on the front and had her hair in pigtails. Her arms were bound with a white cord and pulled over her head. She had duct tape over her mouth and another cord wrapped around her neck with a paintbrush that belonged to Patsy tied to it. This paintbrush created a garrote, which is known as a makeshift strangling device. John Bonet also had duct tape around her neck, and on her right sleeve, there was a dried brown stain that was believed to have come from her nose or mouth. John Bonet also had suffered a skull fracture that was believed to be from a blow to the head caused by a large object. She also had significant amounts of bruising and bleeding in the brain. There were abrasions on her face as well as burst blood vessels over her eyes as a result of being strangled. There were also twin marks on her back that looked like she had been prodded with something, but investigators have not been able to determine where these marks came from. And we're gonna get into that later. Again, just wanna give another quick trigger warning. We are going to be getting into the part that focuses on sexual abuse and the sexual abuse of a child. Again, if you don't want to listen to this, I advise you to skip ahead about a minute or so. John Binet had urine and bloodstained underwear when she was found. There was no urine in her bed, so it's believed that she had an accident after being removed from her bed. The medical examiner found that she had acute vaginal trauma and inflammation as well as an injury to the hymen. There was also evidence of chronic vaginal trauma, which indicates that John Binet had been suffering from long-term sexual abuse for an extended period of time. There was also male DNA mixed with blood found on the waistband of her underwear. John Binet also had undigested pineapple in her stomach. So now we're going to get into some of the theories that people have been speaking about given what was found in her autopsy. So I want to go back to the paintbrush that was found tied around a cord that was tied around John Bonet's neck that created a garrote, which is again known as a sort of, it's pretty much a torture device. It's known as a strangling device, but it is used to torture people. Now this paintbrush was said to have belonged to Patsy. That in itself is just like, whoa. How did that happen? So you're telling me that a kidnapper came into the home without their own weapon and they used a weapon or they used something found in the home as a weapon. Very, very, very highly unlikely. Most people bring their own weapons. Not saying it's impossible, but this is very unlikely. Now, kind of circling back to the twin marks that were found on John Bonet's back, some people believe that these marks came from a stun gun. Again, investigators haven't been able to determine where they came from, which to me is very odd. I don't know why they're not able to find out. This theory suggests that these marks were caused by a stun gun, were caused by the fact that maybe an intruder had come into the home and used a stun gun in order to immobilize John Bonet so they could kidnap her with little to no resistance. There's also a theory that these marks were caused by a toy that was found in the Ramsey home and this toy is said to have been a train, a little toy train and there was actually a train set that was inside of the basement 
where Don Bonet was found, and this train is said to belong to Burke. Again, this can't be proven. This is just a theory. People really aren't sure where they came from. And something I forgot to mention in the autopsy was that there were also finger marks on John Bonet's neck that indicated that she tried to remove the cord from around her neck while she was being strangled, but she was ultimately unsuccessful. So they were able to see scratches on her neck from her own fingernails, which that I that's just heartbreaking, honestly. And kind of circling back to, again, the garrote, the fact that the garrote was even created, you know, this is not something that most people know how to do. You don't see this very often in murder cases in general because most people don't know how to make a garrote. Some people attribute this to John's involvement. Again, this is just a theory, but because John did serve in the Navy, people think that it's possible that he could have learned how to tie a garrote and create a garrote and the knot that was used in order to make it was something that he may have learned in basic training. And it's said that they do teach people how to do this in basic training. But again, this is just a theory. We're not 100% sure, but it is definitely worth noting. On December 29th, 1996, the Ramses flew back to their hometown of Atlanta. And on December 31st, New Year's Eve, John Bonet's funeral was held in Marietta, Georgia, and she was buried next to her older half-sister, Elizabeth Ramsey, who I spoke about earlier, that passed away in a car accident just two or so years before. So now we're going to get into some evidence that was found upon searching the home. So a few things that they found were the fact that the alarm was unarmed that night, but this wasn't a strange occurrence for people that lived in Boulder because it was such a safe area. So a lot of people didn't arm their alarms at night, but there was a broken window in the basement of the Ramsey home. And John claimed that the window had been broken since that past summer because he had forgotten his keys and he had to break into the house and he said that he never fixed it because he just assumed Patsy would take care of it. Yeah, so the window just stayed broken. There were also cobwebs in the windowsill that investigators noted were left completely undisturbed. And there was also a mark on the wall under the window and a blue suitcase that the Ramseys claimed was not there before. And there were also, again, as I said earlier, there were no footprints in the snow anywhere around the house. Eventually, the Boulder PD, they, they wanted to collect more evidence, so they obtained a search warrant for the Ramsey home. And the main area of focus was John Bonet's room because it's said that this is the last place she was believed to be alive before she was brought down to the basement where she ultimately was killed. And in John Bonet's bed, they found long johns containing fecal matter. It's actually believed that these long johns were Burks, but this hasn't been confirmed. There was also fecal matter smeared inside of candy wrappers inside of a candy box that John Bonet was given for Christmas. Now, given the state of the fecal matter, as I said earlier, you know, they, they believed that this came, this happened right after the Ramses got home from the Christmas party. So this also kind of feeds to the theory, you know, was John Bonet awake? when she came home that night. The lead child abuse examiner, Holly Smith, found that almost all of John Bonet's underwear in her drawer had been soiled with fecal matter at some point. Earlier in John Bonet's life, she was known to have had toileting issues and she was said to have still been suffering from these issues as, you know, they, they had gotten pretty bad at one point, but it said that they were getting a little bit better, but she was known to wet the bed pretty frequently. And a lot of people believe that this is kind of an indicator of 
abuse, you know, children having issues, wetting the bed, using the bathroom, um, the fact that she had her fecal matter in very odd places. This is said to be um, a big point of contention for a lot of people because there's been wavering accounts of whether or not this was something that may have potentially led to her death or whether or not this was an indicator of long-term abuse. But given the fact that chronic vaginal trauma was said to have been found in her autopsy, it's definitely possible. So after John Bonet's body again was found, the Ramseys were questioned one more time. So they were questioned before when it was originally a kidnapping and then they were questioned again after it had turned into a murder case. And the Ramseys turned over DNA and hair samples to test against the DNA that was found on the waistband of John Bonet's underwear. So just two weeks after her death, Burke was interviewed by a child psychologist, and I'm going to insert some clips of that here. A lot? Oh. A lot, yeah. Yeah, let's In case you didn't catch most or all or some of what was being said, pretty much the psychologist asks Burke, you know, what's changed at his house. And he says that the police have it blocked off. Um, my parents have been crying a lot. So he understands that whatever is going on is something that he should be sad about because he noted that his parents were sad, that his parents have been crying. But when the psychologist asks him about him and how he's doing, he literally says that he just went on with his life and doesn't really think about it and he just plays his video games so it's kind of just like okay that's interesting and i think a lot of people have pretty much gotten the vibe that john benet and burke weren't that close of siblings which is kind of sad but i mean i guess not everybody can be close to their siblings so then the psychologist rather asks him what he thinks happened and he says i know what happened you know she's dead like, i know what happened she said no i mean how do you think she was killed to which burke responds that he thinks maybe somebody got a knife and did this to her and he literally demonstrates and shows his arm swinging almost as if he's like stabbing the air to kind of simulate what he thinks happened to John Bonet. and she says is that what you think happened and he says or maybe a hammer and then he swings his arm as if it's a hammer again demonstrating what he thinks might have happened to John Bonet. again everybody responds to things like this differently he's nine years old but it's just interesting how he emotionally is so disconnected from this situation 
situation and what has happened to where he can literally act out what he thinks happened almost as if he's seeing it from like a movie or something you know he just seems very disconnected from the whole thing and I actually didn't include um, an audio clip of this because it's hard to understand but the psychologist also asks Burke to draw a picture of his family so Burke draws himself his father John and his mother Patsy and he doesn't draw John Binet at all he doesn't even draw her as like an angel with like maybe a little halo. He doesn't draw her as being in heaven, nothing. He just completely leaves her out. And Burke has actually said that the whole reason he left her out was because I mean, she wasn't there anymore. But it's kind of like, I mean, she, she was there for, you know, a good amount of time and you just left her out. So that was something else that psychologists noted was a bit odd in Burke's interview. Most of the time when Burke speaks, he's a little odd. But um, he could have, I don't think this is confirmed, but some people believe that he has some sort of developmental issues. But again, hasn't been confirmed, hasn't been denied. We're not sure. So speaking about some of the issues regarding the Boulder Police Department's handling of the case, they really struggled to deal with all the elements of what had began to happen once the case went from a kidnapping to a homicide because they didn't have much experience in this area. There were a very low number of homicides homicides in Boulder. So the FBI offered to help them with the investigation, but surprisingly, they actually declined this offer. And this was probably because they were pretty prideful. They probably didn't want to admit that they didn't know how to handle the case. Or some people think that they were instructed to decline the FBI's offer by the district attorney at the time because they didn't want to upset the Ramses. And we'll get into that pretty soon. But eventually the Boulder PD ended up accepting the FBI's help because they realized the case was just too overwhelming for them to take on a loan. They just didn't have the experience. So they were just like, okay, fine, you can help us out. So as going back to what I said about, you know, not wanting to upset the Ramses, the police department was actually instructed by the DA's office to treat the Ramses with quote, kid gloves. And they were pretty much told not to press them on any questions that they couldn't answer. And they were told to go easy on them and just kind of keep it chill, keep it calm, question them. But if they can't answer it, just kind of you know, back off. And many people believe that the reason why the department was told to go easy on the Ramses was because they may have been generous donors to the police department or to the DA's office, you know, their campaign. Keep in mind, the DA is an elected position. And for all we know, the Ramses could have made plenty of generous donations to their political party. But we can't confirm this. We're not sure if this is the truth, but people are kind of confused. They don't know why they would be so accommodating to these people, um, but they could have been pretty generous donors and people didn't want to piss them off. So on January 1st, 1997, the Ramses participated in a CNN interview after claiming to be too emotional to talk to police. And this interview was done months before they even spoke to police. So they were given brief questioning in the beginning after John Bonet's body had been found, but they hadn't gone into the station to give formal statements yet. And they said that they were just too emotional to do so but they were on CNN. So clearly they seem to be a little bit more concerned with getting their narrative out to the public rather than ruling themselves out as suspects in the eyes of law enforcement. So I'm gonna play a little clip of that interview for you here. There is a killer on Absolutely. the loose. I don't know who it is. 
I don't know if it's a he or a she, but if I were a resident of Boulder, I will tell my friends to keep keep your babies close to you. There's someone out there. So if you watch the interview and you can hear it in her voice as well it seems like patsy's clearly on something whether she's drunk or maybe took a xanax i don't know but she seems like she is a little bit under the influence of something um not confirmed we're not sure but you know her eyes are drooping her speech sounds kind of slow, maybe even a little slurred. Uh, yeah, she just seems like, as to be expected, that she's going through it. She's definitely going through it. Now, after the interview, the mayor and the police issued statements claiming that there was no killer on the loose like Patsy claimed. And they said it with such conviction that they pretty much have an idea of what they think happened and who they think was involved. And they don't think it was someone outside of the home. But this is just a theory. Um, Again, no one's been convicted, but they do feel like they have a pretty strong idea of what may have happened. And on April 30th, 1997, five months after the murder, the Ramseys were finally formally questioned by the Boulder PD, but they had some conditions that they wanted the police department to grant to them in order for them to cooperate. So for one of them, they wanted a time limit on how long they were allowed to be questioned, and they wanted a copy of their initial police reports the day John Bonet was found. And of course, all of these conditions were granted. Now, I believe that these conditions might not have been granted to most people, but this was just the kind of special treatment that the Ramses would get a lot of the time. Over time, after questioning and, you know, as the investigation continued to pan out, the Ramses started to get the feeling that they were being suspected. So they both decided to hire two separate lawyers. And a lot of the suspicion surrounding the Ramses had a lot to do with that damn ransom note. That's like the smoking gun of this case. A lot of people were just like, anytime it's like you think that they might not have done it, you go back to the ransom note and you're just like, I don't know, that thing is so weird. So let's talk about a few more things that kind of came out about the ransom note as time went on. So the paper that the ransom note was written on was actually found to have been from a notepad inside of Patsy's desk. The tear and within her notebook were a perfect fit. The pen that was used to write the note was also found in the Ramsey home. And investigators also found a practice note that was in the home apart from the final copy of the ransom note. Now, okay, two things that are very unlikely to happen. One is that you would even have a practice note and then use paper from inside the home to write it. They wrote the note at the crime scene and said, mm, I don't like this one rip it up, ball it up, throw it away. Let's write another one in the home that we're going to commit the crime in. Oh, and let's use a pen from the crime scene as well and then leave it here. That's actually, that's three very unlikely things to happen. And it was determined by the police that, you know, once they read the note and continued to investigate it more, they found out that it would have taken 20 to 30 minutes to write that note. And this would only be if it had been copied from another piece of paper and already had been thought out. So say it wasn't thought out, it probably would have taken maybe 45 minutes closer to, I don't know, an hour or so to write this note. Like I said, if this was written by an actual kidnapper, what are the chances that they would leave behind the pen, a practice note, 
and use materials from the crime scene in order to do so. Because they're leaving behind DNA, they're giving themselves a sense of identity by even having the note handwritten in the first place. It's just a lot of things that are so unlikely to happen that all happened into one. Given the fact that the note was handwritten, John and Patsy were ordered to turn over handwriting samples to investigators. Now John was ruled out almost immediately. Patsy, however, was never ruled out. To this day, has never been ruled out. The handwriting in the ransom note and Patsy's handwriting had over two hundred similarities. And it was also found that in the first few paragraphs, the author tried to disguise their handwriting, but they didn't keep this up throughout the note. Must have just gotten a little bit too hard. They just gave up. Going back to what I had said earlier about the ransom note, how the person tried to disguise their handwriting, they also may have been trying to disguise their language because they spelled, you know, those really simple words wrong, like business and possession, but then they forgot to spell deviation and attache wrong. In the linguistics profile of the author that was comprised by things that they had found and given the evidence based on the note, this profile mentions that the author was most likely of the English language, that they had a pretty high writing ability, that they were older than 30, and they were a female. So do with that information what you will. And in the year 2000, after three weeks of analyzing the note, a linguistics expert concluded that the note was most likely written by Patsy. So Circling back to the DNA that was found on the waistband of John Bonet's underwear, this DNA was called touch DNA, which is detected as a sample that can belong to literally anybody that has simply touched the item in question. So this DNA could have belonged to a person that sold the Ramses, this underwear could have belonged to a factory worker on the assembly line or anyone that touched the carpet in the Ramsey home, given the fact that John Bonet's body was set down on the floor by John. So because this DNA is just touch DNA, it's too small to build a DNA profile on to test accurately enough against other people's DNA. So technically you can't really rule anyone out. I know it sounds kind of confusing, but this is what was found by investigators. There's also DNA found under John Bonet's fingernails that is also touch DNA that is just too small to build a profile on and can't fully rule anyone out. So yes, it can be tested, but because it is so small, it really could belong to anybody. And that's the part of this case that's so frustrating is that it could literally belong to anybody. So in 1998, Burke was also formally questioned as a witness instead of a suspect. So I think the parents were questioned as suspects, but Burke was questioned as a witness. And after this, he was never questioned by police again. So I know a lot of people believe that Burke may have had something to do with this, but police pretty much said, you know what, we're not going to keep questioning this kid. And after that, he was pretty much ruled out. So later that same year, the Boulder District Attorney, Alex Hunter, he decided to convene a grand jury to decide if John and Patsy should be indicted and brought up on charges for the murder of their daughter. And the jury was made up of eight women and four men, and they went over evidence for a long year or so. And they had heard testimonies, they had seen everything they needed to see, 
see. But the district attorney, Alex Hunter, he decided not to indict the Ramses. Now, at this time this decision came out, the documents containing the grand jury's decision were actually sealed. So no one knew what they decided, but people kind of just assumed that, well, if the DA said that they don't need to be indicted, then the grand jury must have felt the same. But it wasn't until 2013 that these documents containing the grand jury's decision were unsealed and the public was finally made aware that the grand jury actually chose to indict John and Patsy. But DA Alex Hunter, he decided against it, which is so rare because usually you convene a grand jury, you're going to use their decision to form your own because they're the ones that have been mulling over this evidence for however long. So it's pretty uncommon for the DA to decide against what the grand jury decides. And a lot of people feel like this had a lot to do with money. They felt like the Ramses were in good with the DA's office and that no one wanted to piss them off. So they chose not to indict them. So I can assume that some people, you know, I, I, I feel like it's pretty split. Some people think the parents did it. Some people think there was an intruder. But here we're going to talk about Lou Smith. Now, Lou Smith was a retired Colorado Springs detective, and he was a person that was also on the fence when it came to whether or not the Ramses did it. But eventually he chose a side. So a little bit about Lou Smith. He was a very successful seasoned cop back in the day. And in March 97, the Boulder PD felt that they should really call on him to help them solve the case. Now, in the beginning, Lou believed that the Ramses might be involved given the evidence that he had seen. And, you know, he just kind of got the vibe that, okay, maybe these parents are up to something. Maybe they know a little bit more than they're letting on. But over time, he started to really believe the intruder theory and that if somebody outside of the home that possibly killed John Bidet. So he decided to re-enter the investigation and he found some pretty interesting things. So Lou found that the window well in the basement had actually been disturbed. So earlier when they found cobwebs in this window well, they said that they hadn't been disturbed. But Lou saw evidence that suggested otherwise. He noticed leaves and foam packing peanuts that were near the window that had also been found by John Bonet's body. And he believes that the intruder tracked these items into the basement while climbing through the window in order to gain entry into the Ramsey home. Lou also believes that he saw a shoe print from a hiking boot near her body. And during the initial brief questioning that the Ramses had been given the day that John Benet's body was found, the Ramses actually claimed that none of them owned a pair of hiking boots, but it was later found that two people, including Burke, provided evidence to the police that they did in fact own a pair of hiking boots. And not to disprove Lou's theory, but there could be so many reasons why there were foam packing peanuts and leaves found next to John Benet's body. Because if you recall, the window in the basement was broken. So anything could have blown these leaves, a gust of wind could have blown these leaves or blown these foam peanuts into the room that could have ended up near her body. So this doesn't necessarily mean that someone tracked them in. There's just a few explanations as to why those items were there. And there was also a baseball bat found in the bushes outside of the Ramsey 
home containing carpet fibers from inside the Ramsey's residence. And Lou believes that someone broke into the house using that bat while the Ramseys were away at the White's Christmas party. So pretty much that they were kind of lying in wait for everyone to go to bed so they could take John Bonet down to the basement. But this theory really didn't have enough evidence to back it up because again, there's so many reasons why that bat could have been there. Anybody could have been playing with it. John Bonet or Burr could have been playing with it and left it there. It may have been in the house at some point because they live there. So again, can't rule it out, but just not enough to support it. Now, going back to those twin markings that were found on John Benet's back that some believe were from a stun gun, others believe were from a toy of Burke's that she was prodded with. Lou believes that these marks were definitely from a stun gun that was used on an, by an intruder in order to immobilize John Benet. And he did extensive research in order to find different stun guns until he found one that appeared to match the markings that were on John Benet's back. And this stun gun was called the Air Taser. So he compared the autopsy photos of John Benet's to autopsy photos of those that had had stun guns used on them. And investigators pretty much said, you know, it's possible, but it couldn't be confirmed. Now, to kind of be on Lou's side, you know, they may not have looked into this theory of this, the stun gun theory as hard as they could because they kind of had tunnel vision on the parents at this point. So I think the investigators were kind of just like, Lou, go away. So I think they kind of brought him in because they thought that he was going to be on their side. And once they realized that he was posing other theories that challenged theirs, they kind of waved him off, wrote him off, weren't really worried about him. So the stun gun theory didn't get the gas behind it that Lou was expecting because, you know, for all we know, the investigators pretty much were pretty dead set on the Ramses. And it's also important to note that Lou Smith was pretty close to the Ramses. Now, just a side note, the investigators and the Boulder Police Department are different than the district attorney's office. So the Boulder Police Department was very heavy on the fact that the Ramses committed this crime and that's more of what they were leaning towards. But the DA at the time, Alex Hunter, he was the one who kind of was like, you know, let's steer away from the Ramses or, you know, no, let's not indict them. So I just wanted to make sure that these two entities were clear. Boulder Police Department is different than the district attorney's office. Just want to make that clear. So going back to Lou, he's coming up with all these theories. He's very dead set on the intruder theory and he presents this, all of his findings to the grand jury. But even though they got this information, they still decided that they felt like the Ramseys were guilty and they wanted to indict them. So there were a few other potential suspects when it came to John Bonet's murder that were kind of floating around the news that some people were pretty suspicious of that the police looked into. So our first suspect was Bill Reynolds. Bill attended two of the Ramsey family's Christmas parties as Santa Claus, and he was said to have been paying a lot of attention to John Bonet. And he was also reported to have told her that Santa was going to pay her a special visit that night. Now, Bill didn't have a great relationship with his own kids, so he kind of attributed this as to why he was so close to John Bonet. But eventually he was ruled out as a suspect. The next suspect was a guy named Gary Oliva. He was a convicted pedophile that hung around the Ramsey's neighborhood a lot. And apparently he was obsessed with John Bonet and he also attended her vigil. According to a friend of his, Gary called him the night of the 26th, confessing that he had hurt a little girl. And four years after the murder, Gary was arrested after he had been found with a picture of John Bonet and a stun gun. 
Hmm. It was later discovered that he had also tried to strangle his own mother with a telephone cord. And the knot in the cord was tied in the same knot used in the garrote that was found around John Benet's neck. Gary also ended up confessing to murdering John Benet, but his confession was inconsistent with the evidence that police found, so it was thrown out. And eventually he was cleared by this touch DNA. So I use the word cleared very loosely in this, given the explanation I gave earlier. So there's a lot, I feel like Gary, I am looking at him a little bit crazy, but I feel like investigators probably didn't put a lot of steam behind this because they were just so dead set on the parents. So they really, they probably were just like, nope, the parents did it. Nope, the parents did it. But there's definitely some things surrounding, you know, Gary Oliva's activities that are definitely cause for concern, but he was ruled out eventually. The next suspect was a man named Michael Helgoth. And supposedly he committed suicide the day after Alex Hunter, the district attorney at the time, said that the killer would be caught in an on-air interview. His coworker later came out and revealed that Michael had said some things to him that had suggested that he had been involved with John Bonet's death. Evidence later came out that Michael may have been killed by an ex-girlfriend and eventually he was also quote unquote cleared by the touch DNA. And last but not least, there was John Mark Carr. He was a former school teacher and pedophile, which sounds extremely terrifying to say. And he confessed to the murder of John Bonet in 2006. Now at the time, he was living in Thailand and he was on the run from the US for possession of child pornography. And later police found out that he was nowhere near Boulder at the time of John Bonet's murder and that he had just been writing some really weird diary entries about killing her. So it was almost like it was a fantasy of his to want to kill her, but he didn't actually do it. And he just made the whole thing up, apparently to get a free ride back to the United States from Thailand and also live out some weird dark fantasy that he had. And he now lives in the Pacific Northwest under a new name and now identifies with a different gender. I'll never understand why people confess to crimes that they did not commit. That to me is so strange. But I, I mean, I guess they do it for attention or like John Mark Carr, he wanted formerly John Mark Carr. He wanted to live out a weird fantasy of killing a little girl. I, I just, I don't understand. There were also a few housekeepers that worked for the Ramses, but eventually they were also ruled out. So just a quick update as well um, on the members of the Ramsey family. So Patsy Ramsey actually passed away on June 24th, 2006 at the age of 49 after battling ovarian cancer for the second time. So she was diagnosed back in 1993 and at the age of 36 she went into remission but her cancer returned in 2002 and it ultimately took her life just four years later she was buried next to john benet and in 2008 the new Boulder District Attorney, Mary Lacey, she formally eliminated the Ramseys as suspects and issued a public apology on behalf of the Boulder Police Department because of all the scrutiny that they were under. And she did this after she sent the long johns that had been found in John Bonet's bed that contained fecal matter, all for DNA testing, and determined that the DNA found was that of an unidentified male. But again, this was just touch DNA, so it technically was too small to fully rule anybody 
out and a lot of people have really thought that this wasn't a great decision on Mary Lacey's part because I mean the clearing of the Ramses was based on just touch DNA so a lot of people thought this was pretty controversial because it wasn't absolute and again this official clearing is not legally binding it's simply a formality it's an apology but that doesn't mean that they couldn't be tried a lot of people thought this was controversial not only because it was just based on touch DNA but also the fact that there is a lot of very strange evidence that some believe does still point towards the Ramses. So today, John Ramsey is 79 and he lives in Michigan with his new wife, Jan, who he got married to in 2011. And he claims to have lost his entire fortune after he had been worth millions in the 90s. As I had been saying, they were a very wealthy, very rich family and he lost his entire fortune. So it's it's pretty safe to say that this whole tragedy has really Really ruined their family in more ways than one. It's really sad. Burke is 35 years old and he also lives in Michigan and he graduated from Purdue University in 2009 and he majored in software engineering. I'm sure most of you know about this but in 2016 Burke did a sit-down interview with Dr. Phil and I believe that was his first time talking about the murders since it happened since he was interviewed back when he was 10 or 11. So um, I can't include any clips of that because Dr. Phil is um, copyrighted, so not trying to get in trouble. But if you want to go check that out, I'll see if I can leave a link to it below. I think that, I don't know, Burke just, he's an odd one. He is. I know a lot of people think Burke did it. I think a lot of people think that his energy and his vibe during that interview is attributed to the fact that he may or may not be guilty. Um, Burke, I think, is just a little bit strange acting. I don't know if it's because he knows more than he has said or if he's just a weird guy. I really don't know. Maybe he's just a little bit different. I really don't know. But I'll let you be the judge of that. Go ahead, watch the video, watch the interview, leave a comment. Let me know what you think of it. But we are going to go ahead and wrap up the episode for today. Just some final thoughts. I really have been very interested in this case for a long, long time. To me, it's so shocking that it's not solved because there's so much evidence, but there's also just not enough at the same time. And at the time, just imagine being there in the 90s, hearing about this, and you would think, oh, you know, this is going to be solved. There's plenty of evidence. It seemed for a moment there pretty cut and dry. I don't think anybody thought when this occurred that 20, 30 years later, it would still be unsolved, um, but it is. And it's really sad that John Binet, who would be 32 today, had her life cut so short. She was frozen in time at such a young age, only six years old. And my heart really does go out to her. And it's just a tragic case all around, honestly. And if the family did have something to do with this, that would be insane given the details of the case and the brutality in which she was murdered. I mean, that would just be, I, I couldn't even imagine if that were the case. I mean, this is your child, but at the same time, if they didn't do it, I feel sorry for them because they've gone through a lot. And from Patsy's standpoint, you know, if she had nothing to do with it, imagine dying and everyone thinks that you had something to do with your daughter's murder or you knew about it to some extent and didn't say anything. So if they were innocent, uh, that's 
I feel sorry for them. If not, there's a special place in hell for you. Absolutely no child deserves to go through what John Bonet went through in the last few moments of her life. I can only imagine how afraid she must have been. And it breaks my heart to know that someone so young and so innocent and so precious had to experience something so horrible. And that was in the last few moments of her life. It breaks my heart. It kills me that this hasn't been solved. It's frustrating because when something like this happens, you want justice for the victim, especially someone so young and innocent. And the fact that we may never get that because it has been so long, just sad to think about. John Bonet deserves justice. She deserves peace and finality. And it's very sad that we don't know if she'll get that. And the fact that she still hasn't gotten it yet is just really frustrating, honestly. But we're going to go ahead and wrap up our very first episode. Thank you guys so much for listening and being here. I really appreciate you taking this deep dive into crime with me. Please leave some comments. Let me know what you think. This is my first episode. Um, I'm still polishing everything. So please let me know what you think. Keep it respectful. Okay, please keep it respectful. (laughs) This is my first time doing this. Okay, so be nice. Thank you. And yeah, so we're gonna go ahead and end it there. I will see you hopefully in the next episode. And again, thank you for taking this deep dive into crime with me. And I hope to see you in the water soon.